Well, it was going to be the first wedding he'd ever attended. His aunt was about to marry my roommate. All of his family would be there. There'd be a feast and dancing, but most importantly, to a five-year-old boy named Alex, he got to play a special role because his aunt and soon-to-be uncle asked him to serve as the ring bearer. He was so excited, he'd get to wear a special outfit and then everything. But when they got to the tuxedo shop, um, it became clear that little Alex's expectations of his role for this wedding needed adjusting. You see, he knew what a ring was, but he'd never heard of a bearer. It sounded like his family was saying something else. So while his family was imagining him dressed up like the kid in this first picture that we have for you here, where you might say he's kind of dressed up like, like a penguin, black and white. Little Alex thought he got to be dressed up like the child in this next picture. A bear, a ring bear. He was so disappointed. It's not that a wedding, the wedding was not awesome because it was, and it's not that he didn't get to play a significant role. I mean, he did, it just wasn't what he expected. Thank you for that. Reality is, is often different than what we expect, even for us grown-ups in the room. And unmet expectations can actually leave us feeling down, disappointed, especially if we've set our hopes on dreams that don't match the reality before us. Maybe you've had your share of experience with unmet expectations. Maybe, unlike Alex, it did not involve what you got to wear as you walked down the aisle in a wedding, but, but maybe it did. Maybe it's how a friendship or a relationship went. Maybe it's an acceptance letter or a job offer or a scholarship that, that you never received. Maybe it was uh, an expected source of joy that brought pain, or where you expected safety, you felt unsafe. Maybe where you expected swift justice, it was delayed or maybe even denied. Maybe as the story of your life unfolded, you found yourself saying, just like the grandson in the movie The Princess Bride, hold it, hold it, that's not how the story goes. You're reading it wrong. And as unmet expectations mount, you can find yourself doubting the very thing that you once hoped in or hoped for. This morning, we're actually going to look at a passage from a time when there were great expectations. John the Baptist uh, had been out in the desert calling people to repentance, baptizing them, and, and speaking of someone who would come after him, someone far greater, far more powerful, someone who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But by the time we get to chapter 7, John's own fiery ministry had got him in hot water with King Herod, who has now thrown him in prison, the kind of place where unmet expectations become fertile soil for doubt. We pick up the story in, in Luke uh, chapter uh, 7, verse 18, uh, where John has just been told about the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, uh, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had, been, who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, 
the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So what do we see here in this passage? For those of you who like outlines and, and three points, we see a doubting Baptist, uh, a source of a doubt, and Jesus' response to our doubts. First, we see a doubting Baptist, John the Baptist, uh, or rather John the Baptizer, as he is sometimes known, and he's struggling. In verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things that Jesus had been saying and doing. You see, right before this, we read how Jesus raised a widow's son from the dead. Right before that, we read how Jesus healed a centurion's servant. And before that, Jesus was teaching things unheard of in the world before then. John hears all of this from his disciples, but in response, he asks this question to them. In verse 19, he basically asks them to say, Jesus, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect somebody else? You see, John and others were looking for the one, the one to come, God's anointed, the, the long-awaited king, the Messiah, the one that their hopes and dreams would rest upon. Many had come before, claiming to be him, but they didn't pan out. For John, the question is not a random question of curiosity. It's the voice of doubt. We, we know that um, because uh, Jesus says to him in verse 23, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. That phrase, fall away, is a translation of the word uh, scandalizo, where we get the word scandalized from. But here it's a word that carries the sense of giving up one's faith, to reject, uh, to desert, to, to have doubts about something or someone. And the object of John's doubt is Jesus. And the fact that it was John doing it speaks volumes about the nature of doubt. You see, John and Jesus went way back. They were family. Their, their mothers were cousins. One time, while John's mom Elizabeth was six months pregnant with him, he leapt in the womb at just the sound of, of Jesus' pregnant mother's voice. In adulthood, John personally baptized Jesus, declaring him the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We read in, in chapter 3 of this gospel of how John saw the Spirit of God descending on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice declared from heaven, You are my Son, with whom I am well pleased. John had seen and heard amazing things in Jesus' presence. Jesus wasn't just some stranger that John had vaguely heard about third hand. John knew Jesus. And as we see beginning in verse 24, Jesus knew and had plenty to say about John. You see, since John was, was preaching and baptizing in the wilderness, Jesus asks rhetorically, 
What did you go out in the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Well, if not, what did you go out to see? Now, if he meant a literal reed blowing in the wind, the simple answer would be, uh, no, we went to see John. Uh, but if it was a figure of speech to try to describe somebody who could be swayed by the wind, uh, what we might call a, a pushover, well, nothing could be farther from the truth. Even kings like Herod did not intimidate John the Baptist. He spoke truth to power, confronting the evil that Herod was committing, rebuking his immorality. John was as bold as they come. So Jesus goes on to ask, well, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury, they live in big palaces. In other words, a man of luxury, unfamiliar with the hardships of everyday life? Not even close. John was the exact opposite. He wore simple, if not very rough, clothing. Rather than feasting in, in a palace, he lived off of the land. He ate things like locusts and wild honey in the desert. John was as rugged as they come. So who was this John? Jesus says, a prophet, and yet more than a prophet. John is often referred to as the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, uh, the one that other prophets like Malachi actually prophesied uh, about, the one who would prepare the way which is exactly what John had been doing in his ministry. And Jesus himself says in verse 28, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, the last, the greatest of, of the prophets. And yet even he doubted. Nobody is too tough to struggle with doubts. No amount of knowledge, experience, or education for that matter makes you above doubting, and neither does your service. We, we've got a, a picture for you here. A, uh, I think we have a picture, yeah. A decade after her death, uh, the woman uh, known as uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta, better known as Mother Teresa, had some of her writings published in an autobiography entitled, Come Be My Light. For decades, she served far from her European homeland among the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. The ministry that she founded there, missionaries of charity, served the poor, the sick, and the dying in the slums of the city. And despite the fact that she started alone and without funding, that this ministry soon grew from one nun to over 5,000 today, eventually grabbing the attention not only of the larger church, but the watching world. So in 1979, she was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for her work. She was living the kind of life that seemed to exemplify faith in action, having once written, I want to love Jesus as he has never been loved before. And yet for the greater part of 50 years, she struggled with her doubts. In one undated letter, Mother Teresa writes, My God, I have no faith. I dare not utter the words and thoughts that crowd my heart afraid to uncover them because of the blasphemy. If there be God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convincing and convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great, nothing touches my soul. 
doubt. They can touch anyone, even Mother Teresa, even John the Baptizer. None of us are immune. Why is that? Thank you for that picture. Well, as we consider the broader context of this passage, we actually start to see a source of doubt. Back in Luke 3.16, John declares to the people who came to him, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See, John was awaiting that one more powerful than him. He was expecting it, one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit and, and with fire. But what would that look like? How would that play out? When would it play out? How we answer those types of questions form in our mind our expectations. John would have had some form of expectation of, of what God would do or, or what it might look like. Just think about this. The power of God in John was so great that he came out, people came out to the desert to hear him preach, and lives were changed there. But he hears someone is coming who's even more powerful than he is. And what he was doing with water, they would be doing with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Just hearing that, what images come to your mind? If you had never read about Jesus or his ministry, what would you imagine that looking like? How would you imagine someone as powerful as that respond, say, to conflict or rejection? Well, in Jesus' day, when two of his disciples saw people rejecting him, they once asked him, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Now, instead of green-lighting their suggested air raid, Jesus rebuked them for even suggesting it. But where did the expectation that what that they would be about raining fire down on people actually come from? Were they thinking of the words of John the Baptist? Would John have imagined one that he was waiting for doing something similar? The apparent disconnect between what Jesus, disciples, and many others expected his ministry to look like and what it actually looked like is a theme we see throughout the Gospels. In fact, so much so, as I've mentioned before, a friend in Nebraska once uh, pointed to the bracelets that so many people were wearing 20 years ago. They said WWJD. It stood for What Would Jesus Do? And he said that those were missing a few letters. They really should say WKWJWD, which stands for who knows what Jesus would do? Because he was always surprising people in the midst of their expectations. For example, it seems whenever people came to Jesus as an answer man, he would reply to their answers, uh, their factual questions, with a story or by telling a parable. I've got a question for you. Let me tell you a story. It seems that uh, when people thought that, you know, they got Jesus figured out, they would try to, to help him by saying, kids, get away. And Jesus said, no, let the little ones come to me. While many expected a military conquest over their Roman enemies, Jesus was teaching them to love their enemies and even eat with the tax collectors of the Romans. When one of Jesus' disciples thought that he was protecting him by telling him, don't go there, Jesus' response was, get behind me, Satan and later told the same guy, Peter, put away your sword. 
But that only happened after Peter would have witnessed Jesus flipping over tables and cracking a whip in the temple courtyard of all places. Who knows what Jesus would do? Looking at Jesus' use of the word scandalizo in verse 23, a word meaning fall away or, or be offended, biblical scholar Daryl Bach writes, Jesus was saying, blessing comes to the one who is not offended by the uniqueness of Jesus' way of ministry. The fact that Jesus' style of messianic ministry is unexpected should not trip people up. But the reality is people can struggle to accept, to believe in the one that doesn't fit their expectations. For example, you don't have to be a kid to answer this, raise your hand if you've ever seen the movie Zootopia. Anybody out there seen a lot of, seen a lot of parents? There we go. Someone really liked it. All right, cool. Well, it's, if it's been a while, we've got a picture of the main characters from Zootopia for you, and, and I can summarize the story. Despite finishing the top of her class at the police academy, bunny rabbit Judy Hops, that's her on the right, is assigned to traffic duty, writing tickets for expired meters rather than trying to solve the big cases that she was made for. The reason why? She was a bunny. Police officers were expected to be big and, and strong and, well, not cute little bunnies. Along the way, she meets a fox named Nick Wilde. That's him on the left side. We learn later on that he was once rejected by the Junior Ranger Scouts because they expected a good member of their group to be, well, not a fox, not a, not a predator. But in the end, it was actually the bunny and the fox working together that defy people's expectations and were able to crack the big case and not using the means that people might have expected. Instead of a long interrogation at the police station, Judy gets a full confession using a carrot pen with a voice recorder inside. And the way that she got that confession out of the, the perpetrator? Because Nick replaced a serum designed to turn an animal savage with blueberries from Judy's farm. What an entire police department was powerless to accomplish, Nick and Judy, the predator and the prey, working together, accomplished with a carrot pen and blueberries. Who expected that? Thank you for that. You see, our expectations make a huge difference in life. They even make a difference in the good times. Um, this uh, last week, I was watching the uh, World Championships of track and field, and, and I saw this illustrated in how winning silver, the second place medal, brought very different responses for Americans in two different events. Uh, in one event, the men's uh, four by 100 meter relay, the men were expected not only to win gold, but after three Americans finished first, second, and third place in the individual 100 meters, and knowing that they had a, a world record holder as the fourth member of that relay, well, there was talk of them destroying the world record, all in an event that they had won more than any other nation in history. The other silver medal uh, was in the women's javelin throw, uh, where 36-year-old Kara Winger who had already endured two ACL surgeries, had never won any championships medal, nor had any American before her. She wasn't even positioned for any color of medal as she came to her final attempt until a throw of 210 feet won her that silver. As one reporter described it, 
uh, as she was there wearing the knee brace following the surgeries, she spent 20 minutes parading around the track, a smile never leaving her face. I think we actually have a picture of that for you. The announcer called uh, her, she, her silver medal the feel-good moment of the championships. But the same announcers described the relay's unexpected silver medal as the biggest upset of the day. As you can see in this next picture, the looks on the faces of each silver medalist right after their event were so different, you could have hardly imagined they just were awarded the exact same thing. What made the difference was expectations. Thank you for that. It makes a difference in how we respond to the blessings that we do or do not receive. But it also makes a difference in the hardships that, as well. Uh, I was talking with a doctor not long ago uh, about the difference uh, between outcomes for their patients and how it seemed to have everything to do with their expectations. A sprained ankle, for example, I learned, will usually take six weeks before everything is fully healed up and you don't feel it anymore. But if you expect it to be fine in five days, as many of his patients did, the recovery process becomes actually a lot worse. You'd think something is actually worse with your ankle than just being sprained. Your frustration often mounts. Maybe finding yourself doubting the competency of your doctor, even if the treatment was flawless and you're actually doing better than most patients. In fact, he shared, many malpractice suits end up coming down to simple unmet expectations rather than bad practice. So you can just imagine how unmet expectations could have played out in John's thoughts in prison. Knowing that he was called to preach repentance to God's people, but now sitting in prison because he wouldn't give a king a free pass for his public sins. Maybe wondering why the one more powerful than him wasn't using that power to free him or crush the Romans, or at least do something about Herod. Maybe he assumed the timing of all these things would have been within his lifetime. Maybe wondering if the reason he had yet to witness this baptism with the Holy Spirit and fire was, well, because maybe he'd been wrong about Jesus all along. And the suffering that he was experiencing as he sat in that prison wasn't going to doing anything to lessen his doubts. You know, we're never actually told for sure what thoughts were going through John's mind, but we see the effects, the doubt that can so often flow from our own unmet expectations and our own suffering, when what we're expecting, when we're expecting it, and how we're expecting it to come don't match up with what we see in our own lives, in our own world. And our suffering only seems to make it worse together creating a fertile soil for doubts of all sorts of things, even God himself. So often, the more our expectations go unmet, the more that doubt seems to creep in. And today, we're probably more prone to that than ever before. For example, there's a historian named Daniel Borstein who suggests that Americans suffer from all too extravagant expectations. In one of his books, he writes, we expect anything and everything. We expect the contradictory and the impossible. We expect compact cars which are spacious, luxurious cars which are economical. We expect to be rich and charitable, powerful and yet merciful, active and yet reflective, kind and competitive. We expect to eat and stay thin, 
to be constantly on the move and ever more neighborly, to go to a church of our choice and yet feel its guiding power over us, to revere God and to be God. Never have people been more the masters of their environment, yet never has a people felt more deceived and disappointed, for never has a people expected so much more than what the world could offer. Think of some of the expectations that we might find ourselves having. We know that suffering is a given in a, in a world with sin, in a fallen world, but maybe we expect that suffering to only be so bad. So when it goes over that line, we start to doubt whether God is really good. We may even grow impatient when things uh, that we are certain will happen uh, haven't taken place yet, either doubting God's timing or maybe even his power to make those things happen. Maybe asking, is this for real? Why, if this is for real, why do the wicked keep getting away with it? As John may have been asking. Or if all of my hopes are not in vain, why doesn't it look that way from here? it may look from a prison. Why do we still see injustice in the world, even among God's people? Why do bullies still walk our playgrounds? Why don't pets and, and grandmas live forever? If God is so good, why is my life so hard? In asking these kinds of questions, we might expect to be able to find a good answer if we search hard enough, a good reason for something that happened, but we can't always imagine or always find a good one, so we might be tempted to doubt that there just isn't one to be found, or even beyond our finding. See, rather than doubting our presumed ability to wrap our finite minds around an infinite God, we might instead choose to doubt God himself, and our refusal to doubt our own ability can lead to great pain. Maybe you've seen this meme online. Uh, we've got a picture for you. Uh, it's a picture of a sign in front of a road that had just been taken out by a landslide. For those of you laughing, you've already read the sign that says, just speed up a bit. You got this. Now, maybe after watching one too many Looney Tunes cartoons, somebody might think, okay, if I just don't look down, I think I'll be okay, and I can make it. Yeah. And yet the reality is, as great as your car and your driving ability are, maybe the solution isn't just speed up a bit, but rather reconsider your approach here. And in a sense, that's what Jesus is telling John and telling us to reconsider, not to simply grieve how reality doesn't match our expectations. There's, there's a place for that as well. But in, in addition, to let God set our expectations. And we see that in this passage in how Jesus responds to our doubts. Thank you for that picture. The way Jesus responds uh, to John in his doubts is not by scolding him for asking his question. And by the way, neither should that be our response to others' honest questions. But instead, he responds by pointing back to what God has said and to what God has already done. In verse 21, Luke gives his readers this summary. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. We see this all over the Gospels, including no fewer than nine references to healing the blind by Jesus. 
And then in verse 22, Jesus points John to the things that God told them to expect the coming of the Messiah, uh, the one that they've been waiting for. He replied to his messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard, things that John might have missed because he was in prison. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those uh, who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. So, let's look at our messianic checklist. One more powerful than John? Check. Doing one miracle after another. But is he good? Well, just look at the lives that he is changing. Check. Check. And yet these aren't just random items on Jesus' resume. See, as you heard in the scripture reading from the prophet Isaiah, after talking about God coming to his people, he writes, Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. You see, knowing the words of the prophet, and then hearing Jesus' response to John while he's in prison, we see Jesus checking one messianic box after another. In Isaiah 61, we heard, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. A passage Jesus read just a few chapters earlier in Luke and declared he was its fulfillment. You see, both prophecies, along with many others, told God's people what to expect when the Messiah comes. And Jesus is saying, through his words and through his deeds, it's time. I'm here. As Daryl Bach notes, all of these passages were in contexts where God's people were awaiting his decisive deliverance. Jesus' ministry may not be what some expected, but it was exactly what God had promised. And what God promised is in many ways greater than what we might expect. See, in the midst of our doubts, Jesus asks us to let God set our expectations. But if our expectations have become disconnected from what God has said, then we'll likely find our lives even more frustrating. The blessings we receive less sweet. The hardships that we feel even harder. And our focus on what isn't happening now or hasn't happened yet can then take our focus on what God has already said, off of what he's already said, off of what he's already done, off of what he's promised to do so we don't even notice it anymore. You see, in the midst of people's doubts, Jesus points us, not to our circumstances, but to what he has said, what he has done, and what he promises he will do. That's how, in the midst of even our greatest unmet expectations and doubts, we can know who our God is and what he is actually like. You see, John had the words of the prophets and the ministry of Jesus to answer his questions. But today, we have even more than that. In Acts chapter 2, after John had already died, we do see Jesus baptizing his followers with the Holy Spirit and with fire, just as he said he would, a baptism that empowered them for the mission that would eventually spread the hope of the nation of Israel to every tribe and every tongue and every nation. But even more than that, the greatest answer to our doubts is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, nowhere else do you see the goodness of God more clearly than Jesus' willingness to live the perfect, sinless life that we should have lived but couldn't have lived, and then going to the cross to die a death that our sins actually deserved. All so that those who trust in him can be welcomed by the Father the way that Jesus himself 
deserve to be welcomed as a beloved child of God. And nowhere do we see the power of God more clearly than in the resurrection of Jesus from the grave, a resurrection that foreshadows and guarantees the resurrection to life of all who trust not in themselves or their service or their education or their theology for the Presbyterians in the room or their morality or their merit, but in Jesus. It's the wisdom of the cross that allows both God's justice for sin and God's mercy for the sinner to be fully satisfied at the same time. A demonstration of wisdom so unexpected, so glorious, that it can comfort us even when our doubts are seemingly drowning us, even when we can't see any good purposes on our own. And yet to receive the very thing that God is given here in this passage, we may not even have to look back that far. Just think back. What has God already done in the lives around you? What has God already done in your life? What change has he brought that he could point to? What healing has he brought? What peace that surpasses understanding? What joy that defied your circumstances? What demonstration of God's goodness or power that exceeded even your own expectations? You would ask a young man named Thomas that question. He might tell you a story like this. I was following this rabbi from the backwoods of Nazareth. He went around for three years from town to town, teaching like nobody had ever taught before, doing miraculous things nobody had ever seen before. When the religious elites expected this new kid on the block to play by their rules, well, Jesus wouldn't even play their games. When John the Baptist answered questions about how to live with answers, Jesus would often answer questions with another question or, or with a story. As unexpected as his ministry was, what was the most unexpected came in one wild week. We had gone up to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. The night that we ate that supper together, he told us that one of us would betray him, that another one of us would deny him and that all of us would fall away. And knowing all of those things about us, do you know what he did to us in that room? He washed our feet. The next day, they crucified him. And just like he said, we all scattered. You can imagine how it felt. All of our hopes and dreams shattered in one day. But then something happened something unexpected. A few days later, I ran into some of his other followers, and they were saying that they'd seen him, not a ghost, but alive in the flesh. They even said that they saw the holes in his pierced hand and in his side. But I'd already been through enough already. I already got my messianic hopes up as high as they could be, only to see them dashed to pieces. I basically told them, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it, but until then, I will never believe. About a week later, I was with others who claimed to see him in a locked room when somehow that same rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, appears right in front of us. He had to have heard of what I said. He had to know about the doubts that I shared with others. But then he turned to me and said, put your finger here. 
see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. And by the time he said to me, stop doubting and believe, I was already there, declaring, my Lord and my God, something that nobody else had declared before then. Amazed by an unexpected grace in the midst of my doubts, passing from the lowest of lows when I saw him on that cross to the highest of highs when the resurrected Son of God unexpectedly showed me. So he wants to show you how he welcomes people in their doubts and invites them to hear, to taste, and to see what God has done. Let me pray for us.